50 years ago this month, in December of 1973, two rival knuckleheads unintentionally launched a new holiday tradition. That month, cheeky English glam rockers Wizard and Slade both reached the same astute conclusion. Christmas is a great time to get rich. Cashing in on the public's yuletide shopping spree, the groups independently put out two similarly raucous seasonal stompers. First, Wizard, with their whimsical sing-along, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. Followed shortly later by Slade's drunken ballyhoo, Merry Christmas, everybody. So here it is, Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. Look to the future now, it's only just In the spirit of festive competition, the two bands wagered to see which of them would take the songs higher on the UK pop charts. In the closing weeks of 1973, the two singles raced against each other. I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day got the early start, easily selling to the top 20 in its first week. An impressive showing, but Slade were more than worthy adversaries. The next week, Merry Christmas Everybody debuted all the way at number 1. Although I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day remains a UK holiday standard, it never got past number 4 on the charts. Slade were crowned the victors. Glory to the newborn king. The British music press caught on to the side bet and played up the imaginary feud for publicity. They tried to recapture some of the excitement the next year by pitting Mud's Elvis-inspired pastiche, Lonely This Christmas. It'll be lonely this Christmas without you to hold. It'll be lonely this Christmas. Lonely Up against the Wombles a fictional band of pointy-nosed, environmentally conscious furry critters and their cheerful novelty, Wombolin' Merry Christmas. You can go ahead and do a quick Google search to get a sense of what these weirdo freaks look like. When Christmas morning rolled around, with Mud and the Wombles both perched in the top two, English chart watchers had unwrapped a new national pastime. For half a century now, England has turned their hit parade into a one-month Thunderdome. Each year, the nation makes a sport out of guessing which song will top the singles chart for the week of Christmas. A uniquely British institution, the Christmas number ones is an all-out brawl, inspiring betting pools, office chatter, and televised specials. Victory is well worth the fanfare. A Christmas number one can launch an artist into a new stratosphere of fame. For instance, the opening salvos of both the first I wanna hold your hand. I wanna hold your hand. and second British invasions. conquered their homeland before taking over our shores. For other title holders, from the Pet Shop Boys to the Spice Girls to Ed Sheeran, a Christmas number one cemented their status as imperial hitmakers. While many classics have taken home the top spot, a deeper look at the past winners makes you wonder why we did not declare independence from this godforsaken country earlier. 
Previous winners have included a hodgepodge of curios like Killing in the Name, Rage Against Machines, Fiery Polemic Against a Creeping Presence of Fascism in America's Police Force, A dance remix to the theme tune of the kids show Bob the Builder. The claymation construction worker wound up actually having two number one singles there. His second being a hardwood theme parody of Mambo Number no. Five. A little bit of timber and a saw, a little bit of fixing, that's for sure. A little bit of digging up the roads, a little bit of moving And Benny Hill's Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. A bizarre cautionary tale about a lecherous dairy salesman who haunts a newlywed couple as a ghost after being killed when a rival suitor threw a pie in his face. Oh, okay, yeah, um, Merry Christmas, everyone. They called him Ernie. Ernie! And he drove the fastest milk cart in the West. But the annual sweepstakes unlikeliest superstars may turn out to be its biggest winners. For the past five years, husband and wife comedy team Lad Baby have held the top on lock. Their five consecutive wins shattered a record for most Christmas number ones the Beatles set more than 50 years earlier. Most remarkably of all, they racked up all these hits with ostensibly the same song each time. All of their number ones parody an 80s power ballad with new lyrics changed to be about sausage rolls instead, including We Built This City on Sausage Rolls, I Love Sausage Rolls, and Don't Stop Me Eating, parentheses, Sausage Rolls. The comedic limitations of this increasingly sweaty gimmick are clear. This year, Lad Baby announced a momentary retirement. Thankfully, the scourge of meat pastry-based novelty records has been staved off for at least one more year. Americans do not have to worry about Lad Baby crossing our borders anytime soon. In fact, most Americans may be totally unaware that this quirky British tradition exists in the first place. If they have any passing familiarity with the contest, it's probably all thanks to this one man. You know I love Christmas, I always will. My mind's made up. That was Christmas is All Around, the only redeeming subplot in the highest grossing British holiday film of all time, Love Actually. A seasonal rewatch for fans everywhere, Richard Curtis's 2003 romantic comedy tells the interconnected tale of ten couples as they search for love, be it romantic, physical, familial, platonic, and even unrequited among the coldest of winter. I'm not a fan. It's a stinker. While most of the movie is unbearably cloying, I do have a soft spot for one character arc. The story of curmudgeonly has-been Billy Mack. Played by the always terrific Bill Nighy, 
Billy Mack is a washed up pop singer desperate to get back in the spotlight. Ever a cynic, he is sure that the public will buy whatever piece of candy cane colored crap he puts out. Mack then goes on an embarrassing month-long campaign to push his new single, a shameless holiday-centric cover of the Trogs 1967 psychedelic ballad, Love Is All Around, to the number one spot. And 20-year-old spoiler alert ahead, he pulls it off. Mack's fictional triumph must have resonated with the movie's real-life director, because nine years earlier, Curtis took that exact same song also to number one. There's no beginning, there'll be no In 1994, Richard Curtis hired the horribly named Scottish band Wet 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 to record their own take on Love Is All Around for another film he was working on, Four Weddings and a Funeral. The resulting cover was an absolute blockbuster, spending 15 weeks at number one, the third longest UK chart reign of all time. Of the two versions, Billy Mac's cover is arguably more faithful to the original text because he brought the song back to its Christmas roots. There's no beginning, there'll be no end Cause on my love, you can depend One afternoon, Trog's lead singer Reg Presley was flipping through the channels when he stumbled upon a performance by the Salvation Army Band. The Christian organization was playing an old evangelical piece titled Love That's All Around. Apparently misunderstanding how charity is supposed to work, Presley ripped off the group and stole the title for himself. Ten minutes later, he had a new hit on his hands. Though it fared better in Presley's home country, Love Is All Around was still a sizable hit stateside, peaking at number seven in the summer of 1968. The song owed some of its success to the popularity of the band's earlier single, the elemental garage rock rave-up, Wild Thing. In one of those great moments of cultural serendipity, the Trogs were never meant to record a song that became their masterpiece. Written by session songwriter and John Voight's brother, Chip Taylor, Wild Thing had initially been recorded by no-name bar band The Wild Ones. The Wild Ones take totally bricked on the charts, but the tune slowly made its way through the rock circuit. Fast forward a few months later, and Trogs manager Larry Page had booked a session to record an unrelated orchestra. He had accidentally reserved 15 minutes too much and asked his friends in the Trogs if they had any new material they wanted to work out with the extra time. They picked the first song they could think of. Meaning between Wild Thing and Love Is All Around, Presley has made millions for a collective 25 minutes of work. Now that's the way to do it. Despite their rather brief chart run, Trog songs have continued to kick around the public consciousness for a while. Wild Thing had barely fallen out of the number one spot before it was back on the charts again. Though, I can't really explain why. Wild thing. You make my uh, my heart sing. You make uh, everything uh, groovy. Wild thing. 
That was Wild Thing, a song by Robert F. Kennedy impersonator Bill Minken. Minken's one-joke cover, credited as simply Senator Bobby, reached an astounding number 20 on the charts. To date, the highest charting single by any Bobby Kennedy impersonator ever. Really? You know, I, I don't see that record changing anytime soon. You know, you ask not what your country's doing to you, but you gotta ask, what's the country doing? In the spirit of bipartisanship, Minkin's B-side was another Wild Thing cover, this time sung as Republican Senator and Civil Rights Act architect Everett Dixon. Amazingly, one of the songs that passed on its run through the top 20 was a song by the actual Senator Everett Dixon. Gallant men have built us a nation, passed as a torch of flame. Let us hold it high and light up the sky with praise of our gallant men. We are so removed from a world where a 71-year-old sitting congressman could have an actual hit by reciting a militaristic poem that it's hard to believe it ever happened. But it did. His spoken word piece, Gallant Man, reached number 29. Wild Thing just got a whole lot tamer. Other artists lived up to the Wild Thing name. Jimi Hendrix closed out his iconic set at 1967's Monterey Pop Festival with a notorious rendition where he busted out backwards somersaults, humped his amp, and set his guitar on fire. Those brain-melting theatrics did little to help him sell records. In a complete injustice, the psychedelic messiah never broke past number 20 on the Hot 100, the same chart peak as his alleged musical peer, Senator Bobby. Conversely, 1970's session collective Fancy were rewarded for tapping into their freakier side. Their deeply lascivious cover, backed with heavy breathing and suggestive moaning, got to number 14 in the early years of Disco's takeover. The song has now returned to the charts since, but the trogs certainly still endure. As mentioned earlier, the Trog songs found a second afterlife popping up on movie soundtracks. The same year Four Weddings and a Funeral revived Lovers All Around, another cinematic icon interpolated one of the Trog's romantic tunes for himself. And like Billy Mac nine years later, he too turned it into a Christmas song. Most impressive, this singer is so ugly that he can make Bill Nye look sexy. Christmas Day is near Me and all my fiendish friends Have something you should hear Kids are swell but ghouls from hell Do like Christmas too So write down everything I say You can know what's good for you That was The Christmas Rap By the pun-loving horror host The Crypt Keeper Off the Tales from the Crypt tie and novelty goof Have yourself a scary little Christmas Whereas the rest of the album is made up of macabre parodies of public domain Christmas carols, Christmas Rap is the one song the Crypt Keeper wrote himself. And boy, you can tell. Sampling Reg Presley's opening scream on the Trogs' I Can't Control Myself, Christmas Rap runs down what different Hollywood ghoulies want on their wish list for Santa. Some are to be expected, like a manicure for Freddy Krueger or a flea collar for the Wolfman. Others, like a new prosthetic butt for the Headless Horseman, make less sense. Tragically, Christmas rap has not become the Yuletide staple it deserves to be. 
Let's try to fix that. Go ahead and be the change you want to see in the world. The 90s closed out with one last notable needle drop crib from Presley's back catalog. In hindsight, it was an appropriate choice. Futurama's theme song is a game of cultural telephone. The science fiction animated sitcom theme is built from pieces of the 1967 French instrumental melody Psyche Rock, which in turn was itself forward-thinking composer Pierre Henry's Freakazoid fan tribute to WildThink. Buried under layers of transformation, you can still make out the central melody and backbeat from the 1967 Strog recording in the final mix. Presley would have been thrilled that his music accompanies the Plan Express's wacky high drinks among the stars. That is where he always wanted to be. Thanks to his late career resurgence on movie soundtracks, Presley spent his later years unexpectedly flush with cash. He put his newfound royalties to good use. He went hunting for aliens. Reg Presley's true passion was crop circles. Crop circles, as we now know, were all a hoax conceived by UK pranksters Dave Chorley and Douglas Bauer. Both landscape painters, the two came up with the idea in 1978 after a few rounds of drinks. For 13 years, they snuck around fields in southern England with rope, string, and some wooden planks, constructing up to 30 new circles every season. In 1991, they finally revealed their role in the scam, silencing a decade of wild UFO theories. Or, at least it should have. Presley never let that load of reality stop his fun. In his 2002 book, Wild Things They Don't Tell Us, Presley put forward a slew of outlandish theories on the paranormal, covering everything from demons to fairy dust to time-traveling cavemen. Chorley and Bauer's confession did not shake his faith in Cropsicle's mystical properties. He had his own theory. While it is true that pranksters built the circles, they were simply doing the aliens' dirty work for them. In exchange, the aliens gifted him a pint of alien moonshine. What I wouldn't give to have a sip of that. And how did Presley prove these claims? Next question, moving on. Sadly, Reg Presley died in 2013. The footprint he left hunting UFOs did not outlive his musical legacy. However, Presley's inability to stop talking about aliens indirectly led to one of the greatest moments in British television history. Many years earlier, British sitcom writer Richard Turner unexpectedly ran into Presley at a pub. Turner, who was initially excited to be sharing a glass with a rock and roll titan, quickly found himself getting bored as Presley banged on about his strange beliefs. A few years after the encounter, Richard found himself in the brainstorming room for Beatles About, a 1990s British television show where host Jeremy Beadle pulled off extravagant pranks on the public. While thinking of ideas, Richard remembered his chat with Presley and thought, wouldn't it be funny to trick someone to think they met a real-life alien? The team loved the idea. The prank was eventually set up to take place on a Dorset farm owned by a lady named Janet Elford. The premise of the skit was that a meteorite had crash land on a farm containing a mysterious capsule. Smoke machines were dug into the ground. Yellow and black caution tape was set up around the crater. When Janet returned to her farm, local cops and firefighters in on the act stopped her from getting too close. They directed Janet to the site, telling her that the craft must have landed on her farm because it was in some way intrinsically linked to her. As she and the men looked towards the impact site, phase two of the prank began, and a terrible, cheap, completely fake-looking alien suddenly emerged. Janet was remarkably convinced that she was about to become the first human being to ever make official alien contact. What do you want from us? asked Janet. The creature said nothing and started turning back to its ship. Sensing that her moment was about to pass, Janet desperately hurled one last question at the retreating alien. 
Would you like a cup of tea? To me, nothing Reg Presley has ever done. Not the Salvation Army, not Love Actually, not even the Crypt Keeper's Christmas wrap. Gets closer to the spirit of holidays than this dumb little prank. All Jana needed to know was that a distant traveler had shown up to her door before she was offering him a nice hot meal. If that's not in keeping with the holiday spirit, I don't know what is. I want an alien for Christmas. We need an alien this year. I want a little green guy about three feet high with 17 eyes who knows how to fly. I want an alien for Christmas this year. You're listening to WHM Charleston 96.3 Ohm Radio. Hello and happy holidays from Off Key. I'm Jeff Youngman, and with me is Santa's little helper, Nate Youngman. It's that time of the year again. Right now, families everywhere are gathering around their television to rewatch the old holiday favorites for the millionth time. Whereas some people can stomach an annual Love Actually session, I can't. Our household is partial to classics like It's a Wonderful Life, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and embarrassingly, Office Christmas Party. But there is another, more controversial entry in the holiday canon that we can't get enough of. This week, Off Key traces that convoluted story of the musician-turned-actor and actor-turned-musician behind the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Let's get started with Act 1, Franklin Sense. Christmas is a time for miracles, and each year the impossible becomes predictable. The dead come back to life. Christmas music is an odd game of cultural necromancy, a brief moment where long-gone relics like Bobby Helms, Burl Ives, and Andy Williams share chart space with current heavy hitters. It's gotten to the point where, in one morbid statistic, right now as we record, the top ten is made up of more dead artists than live ones. This artistic freeze has as much to do with traditionalist reluctance to move past old nostalgic favorites as it does with the lack of any recent consensus material to add into the rotation. As a result, we are stuck hearing the same handful of wintry tombs year after year. Even the artists still with us aren't exactly in their cultural prime. For instance, Brenda Lee's 2023 success caused something of a musical time warp. When Rocking Around the Christmas Tree finally climbed to number one this year, the 79-year-old former teen star reached the summit with a song that she initially recorded when she was just 13. Meaning that with one song, Lee simultaneously became the oldest woman ever credited on a number one single and also the youngest woman to ever sing on one. The new old-fashioned way indeed. As long as Billboard allows holiday records to blanket the top 40, similar incoherent chart feats will happen every December. In fact, just this week, another long-standing chart milestone fell. At least this one may be impossible to beat. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. In the closing weeks of the holiday season, as 2022 rolled over to 2023, Frank Sinatra was yet again changing musical history. That week, his lively reworking of the Thanksgiving-turned-Christmas-perennial Jingle Bells snuck its way into the top 20. It marked his first appearance on the chart's upper half in 55 years. That number 20 chart peak was a bit of a belated Christmas present. By crossing that final threshold, Sinatra had set the record as the longest-lasting hitmaker of all time. 83 years earlier, on July 27, 1940, Sinatra made his chart debut singing uncredited lead vocals on trombonist Tommy Dorsey's number one hit, I'll Never Smile Again.
The song marked not only Sinatra's first number one hit, but the first number one period. The day Billboard magazine released their inaugural ranking of the best-selling records in America, I'll Never Smile Again happened to be the most popular song in the country. The 83 years separating Sinatra's presence on this 1940 proto-Hot 100 chart topper and his fluke 2023 Christmas resurgent holds a record for the longest span of time between an artist's first and last top 20 hit. Considering no one could go back any further than Sinatra's first entry, and he seems well poised to rechart each year for the foreseeable future, the title is only his to lose. As we were recording, Jingle Bells reached a career peak at number 15, extending Sinatra's record for at least one more year. The only question is how long he can keep this Yule log burning. Jingle Bells is far from Sinatra's only contribution to the holidays. Mostly a symptom of being the best-selling artist when the Christmas canon solidified, Sinatra has become the holiday's unofficial ambassador. In addition to Jingle Bells, He's roasted lower-charting chestnuts like Silent Night, The Christmas Song, and I'll Be Home for Christmas. In 1992, Cindy Lauper resurrected Old Blue Eyes for her playful take on Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He's making a list, checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty at night. Santa Claus is coming to town. More than a mere cover artist, Sinatra even wrote his own Christmas standard, Mistletoe and Holly. Oh, by gosh, by golly, it's time for Mistletoe and Holly. Tasty pheasants, Christmas presents, countryside's covered with snow. Sinatra's Christmas output is so extensive that it has unfairly rewired our perceptions of him as an artist. Nowadays, it's his wintry selections you're most likely to hear. On Spotify, streams for Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow dwarf those of other famed recordings including My Way, Come Fly With Me, and New York, New York. He is hardly alone. Christmas records have a tendency to subsume the artists that made them popular. Jose Feliciano, Donny Hathaway, and Darlene Love have a raft of hits between them, but have now found their careers largely shrunk down to just their holiday samplings. It's easy to imagine a scenario where Sinatra might someday face a similar legacy. On the plus side, Sinatra's Christmas songs ensure the crooner will be a household name for generations to come, but it does skew his place in the musical firmament. It would be a shame if one of the most transformative figures in America's song was reduced to nothing more than Santa's little helper. Yet, in a weird foreshadow of his post-career afterlife, even his non-holiday fare has been taken in by the holiday spirit. He could not avoid his fate. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. Sinatra's last major pre-Jingle Bells hit was his 1967 duet with daughter Nancy titled Something Stupid, the rare song where name also works as its own review. Ooh, burn. <laughs> 34 years later, British vocalist Robbie Williams and explicitly teamed up with actress Nicole Kidman for their own jazzy translation of that number. Their sultrier version reached the coveted UK Christmas number one in the final weeks of 2001. Here's hoping this is not Sinatra's last brush with the Christmas number ones. And then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. Sinatra is so emblematic of the holiday that he is even name-checked in a strong contender for the greatest Christmas song of all time. Sinatra was swinging, all the jokes they were singing, we 
Just on the corner, then dance for the night The boys of the envelope Despite initially stalling at number two, The Pogues and Kirsty McCall's beloved, if slightly blemished ballad, Fairy Tale of New York, has emerged as a standard, returning to the UK charts more than 14 times since its 1987 release. There is good money that this year, the booze-soaked ode to this reputable and downtrodden might even go all the way. Following the recent passing of Pogues' troubled genius frontman, Shane McGowan, Mourners launched a fan campaign to gift the band the chart peak that eluded them in his life. A lovely sentiment for a band that took its name from the Gaelic phrase for Kiss My Butt. All these years later, Sinatra is still swinging. But do not let the wholesome catalog fool you. Sinatra was as shady as they come. The Italian-American singer palled around with many confidence in that other great Italian-American institution, the Mafia. Sinatra's checkered past with such a common knowledge that it even inspired a key plot point in another not-so-jolly movie, partly set at Christmas, The Godfather. In spite of Mario Puzo's insistence that his novel is purely fictional, movie fans generally accepted that the character of Johnny Fontaine, the mobbed-up, smooth-talking singer who tries to pivot to acting, was a thinly-veiled shot at Sinatra. So offended by the depiction, Sinatra tried to pressure mob boss Joe Colombo to stop the film's production. By the time the movie became an accepted classic, Sinatra grew to appreciate the cinematic nod. But his headaches with the film were not quite over. The Godfather's runaway success set in motion a bizarre chain of scandals that very nearly left Sinatra dead. Robert Evans just could not miss. Throughout the 1970s, the Wonderkin producer had the type of legendary run that makes you question if he was mortal. From 1968 to 1974, he churned out at least one masterpiece a year. Rosemary Baby, True Grit, Love Story, Harold and Maude, great movie. The Godfather, Serpico, great movie. Chinatown, great movie. After a brief pause, he finished off the decade in top shape, producing worthwhile blockbusters like Marathon Man, Popeye, and Urban Cowboy. His unparalleled hot streak hit a speed bump when he got busted taking a few bumps of something else. When Evans was arrested for trafficking cocaine, he offered the bulletproof defense that he had no plans to sell the drug because he was going to use it all himself. Perhaps that type of legal acumen explains the mindset that decided to relaunch his career with the long-doomed passion project, The Cotton Club. Set in the titular Prohibition era speakeasy, the prestige film was going to be an expensive epic dealing with the corrupt nature of fame. That story was better told behind the scenes. He pinned all his hopes on a film that took five years to shoot and went insanely over budget. Evans was so desperate for cash that he resorted to taking backing from Saudi arms dealers. He finally found the help he needed when former girlfriend-slash-drug dealer Karen Greenberger introduced him to wealthy theatrical producer Roy Radin. At age 33, Roy Radin was already washed up. He got his start touring with J. Fred Muggs, the three-piece suit-wearing chimpanzee actor who briefly served as NBC's mascot. Concerning Raiden's most notable credit was acting alongside a co-star that smelled of bananas and feces, he was clearly no Hollywood power player. But he did have a reputable run managing talent on the stand-up circuit. By the 1980s, he was struggling for relevance and agreed to back Evans as a financier. It cost him a lot more than his wallet. Three years into filming, Raiden's bullet-riddled corpse was discovered dumped in a creek. The investigation concluded that three goons hired by Karen Greenberger murdered Raiden over a scam to skim the movie's profits. Evans was suspected of being involved in the plot, 
but pled the fifth to avoid incriminating himself. All the more tragic, the film was not even a hit. The Cotton Club ended up being a Golden Raspberry-nominated flop. The prosecution's key witness, William Ryder, provided tapes discussing Radin's murder. While investigating that case, detectives discovered proof that this was not the hitman's first job. The trigger man for this insane plot was a CIA mercenary and a genuine weirdo, Mitchell Wurlbell. Murbell was an outrageous crook. He pretended to be descended from Russian nobility, strutted around in a beret and kilt, really, and always sashayed with a gold-topped sword tucked under one arm. He invented both submachine gun silencers and a best-selling diaper line. Quite the uh, renaissance man. In 1975, he was charged with smuggling 50,000 pounds of marijuana into the U.S., but beat the charges after a key witness died under mysterious circumstances. Wurbell had that kind of luck. Like an evil Forrest Gump, Wurbell was lurking in the shadows of every seedy moment in American history. He served as a secret agent in the OSS Southeast Asian Division, a breeding ground for future CIA sleazeballs. When Wall Street super crook Robert Vesco bribed the Nixon administration into blocking his prosecution, Wurbell was the bagman who delivered $200,000 donation that the White House used to cover up Watergate. When the Libertarian Phoenix Foundation staged an attempted coup in the Bahamas to create their own anarchist collective, they hired Werbel to train their revolutionaries. Similarly, Werbel conspired with anti-Castro Cubans to overthrow Papa Doc Duvalier in a Haitian invasion financially backed by CBS News. The CBS invasion eventually collapsed after the camera crew realized that their work was very illegal. Good thinking, guys. By 1988, he was stuck slumming it by hosting a survival training school in Georgia where gullible clients paid to learn commando skills, including how to fashion a deadly weapon out of a tin can and simpler tactics like how to kill a man by throwing screwdrivers and scissors at them. How much training do you really need to learn that? That's pretty basic. Well, now, they teach you don't to run with scissors. Werbel's resident martial arts sensei was such an expert that he allegedly walked upside down on the ceiling and caught bullets in the air. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it should be no surprise to learn that the whole operation was a total scam. Yet one man was taken in by the ruse, the gleefully crass Larry Flint. One of America's greatest sickos, Flint was the mastermind who figured out how to turn Hustler from a strip club newsletter into one of the best-selling magazines in America. Hustler is more than just porn. It produced some of the most debauched images ever set to print. Under Flint's leadership, the magazine adopted a brand image somewhat between gross and soul-crushing. It was not all deplorable garbage. He turned crudeness into a crusade. Flint's single-minded insistence on shock value united feminists and conservatives in the condemnation, while making him a hero to the free speech crowd. He spent years locked in battle with the moral majority leader, Jerry Falwell, over a parody claiming the Reverend lost his virginity to his mother in an outhouse. Falwell did not think the gag was a joking matter and took the case to the Supreme Court. Flint, who still thought the case was pretty funny, showed up to the hearing wearing the American flag as a diaper. The Supreme Court eventually found in Flint's favor. Flint's sense of showmanship quickly evaporated after a white supremacist serial killer shot him in the spine as revenge for publishing interracial porn. So, porn was okay. Interracial? No, it's okay. The attack left Flint paralyzed from the waist down, prompting a downward spiral of painkiller abuse and paranoia. The darkest moment of this crisis culminated in him hiring Mitchell Werbel, you remember Mr. Werbel, to kill his rivals. Larry Flint paid Werbel $1 million to assassinate fellow porn magnates Hugh Hefner and Bob Guccione, and for reasons that were never quite made clear, Frank Sinatra as well. Luckily, Werbel died before he could carry out the plot. The official cause of death was a heart attack, but those closest to the case had another theory. 
William Ryder, who was a key witness in the Cotton Club case, was accused of slipping poison into Weirbel's drink during a cocktail party at Flint's lavish Hollywood mansion. Ryder supposedly bragged about the murder, saying he hoped to take over Weirbel's counterterrorism training camp once the bump on the log was out of the way. FBI review of Weirbel's autopsy report failed to corroborate that rumor. All signs pointed to Weirbel dying of congestive heart failure, but his ultimate cause of death is just one of the case's many unanswered questions. After the whole sordid story broke in 1988, Flint flatly denied the charges. Prosecutors could not prove any misconduct and ultimately dropped the case. The only people who will ever really know the truth won't be talking anytime soon. Thankfully, Frank Sinatra survived this very strange ordeal. By narrowly avoiding death, he had a chance to get back to acting. In 1988, the same year Sinatra was busy fending off assassins in the real world, he auditioned to fight them on the big screen. In that capacity, he gave us his greatest contribution to the holidays. And it all loops back to the man who set this whole tragic affair in motion, Robert Evans. Wow, that's good storytelling. Evans' big break in Hollywood came when he purchased the rights to Roderick Thorpe's 1966 novel, The Detective. Two years later, he adapted the movie with Frank Sinatra starring in the title role. The film follows Sinatra as a hard-boiled police investigator tracking down a homophobic serial killer whose calling card is detaching the victim's penises. I don't know why we have to bring up penis every story. Um. 20 years later, 20th Century Fox reached for another of Thorpe's novels in an attempt to revitalize the franchise. They chose 1979's Nothing Lasts Forever. The pot-boiling mystery tells the story of a humorless 50-year-old cop who is trapped in a skyscraper with his daughter when German terrorists lay siege to the building during a heist. Screenwriter Jeb Stewart had a hard time figuring out how to humanize the protagonist into someone the audience could root for. He eventually pieced it together thanks to a freak coincidence of timing. While driving down L.A.'s highways, an absent-minded Stewart did not notice the cars around him. A few feet above him, a refrigerated delivery truck sped around an overpass. Hugging too close to the curb, the truck lost its contents, spilling its cargo into lanes down below. Stewart was charging right towards the boxes at 65 miles an hour. He was convinced that he was about to be pancaked on the street. In those final moments, his life flashed before his eyes. It was mostly filled with regret over the ways he had mistreated his wife. He wished he had a chance to make it up to her. If only he had more time. Luckily, he did. The boxes were all empty. He drove around them with no problem. The close call convinced him to change his ways. It also gave him a great idea for a new character. Stewart repitched the movie to be about a 30-year-old guy who should have said he's sorry to his wife, and then bad stuff happens. Because the movie was functionally a sequel to The Detective, he was contractually obligated to ask the 78-year-old Sinatra if he wanted the role. The geezerly crooner, and I take exception to use of the word geezerly, turned down the role. He had enough excitement in one lifetime. The movie was eventually made, and the replacement made just a little more sense. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. In 1974, blues guitar wizard Albert King released the raunchy, festive send-up Santa Claus Wants Some Lovin'. Embracing a more literal-minded read of Ho, 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 Yeah, the <laughs> naughty take on holiday fun failed to make the nice list, or the Hot 100. For Mark Rice, the stacked session writer behind soul classics like Wilson Pickett's Mustang Sally... And Rufus Thomas's should be a Christmas staple. Do the Funky Penguin. 
This was surely disappointing. Santa Claus Wants Some Lovin' was Rice's first single in three years to miss the charts entirely. He never wrote a new hit again. Yet, 13 years later, one unlikely bluesman repackaged one of his old tunes and gifted Rice the biggest hit of his career. That was the year Bruce Willis unleashed the Bruno. Though it may be easy to forget now, yes it is easy to forget now, Bruce Willis was once a legitimate hitmaker. Coasting on his first wave of TV fame, Motown Records signed Willis under the fictional alter ego Bruno Rattellini. On 1987's The Return of Bruno, the meathead graciously yawped his way through R&B and soul standards. Yet, the album was an unexpected smash. It moved enough copies to wind up as Motown's highest charting album of the year, and gave the legendary label's highest charting single of the year, too. Backed by the Pointer sisters June Pointer, the self-styled Bruno scored a top-five hit with the smirky version of Mark Rice's sole standard, Respect Yourself. In A Complete Injustice, Willis's stunted cover outcharted the staple singer's glorious original. He followed that up with another cover, this time the, the Drifters' beach music essential, Under the Boardwalk. Under the Though it failed to crack the U.S. Top 40, the track went to number two in England. It stayed long enough on the charts to be their 12th best-selling single of the year. Willis's inexplicable popularity provided 20th Century Fox the cover to cast him as their leading man. In 1980, he made his uncredited film debut in the Blink and You'll Miss Him part in The First Deadly Sin. His unnamed cameo proved cosmically appropriate. In his first on-screen appearance, he appeared alongside Frank Sinatra the same man whose decision to turn down a role eight years later gave Willis the break of a lifetime. Blah, blah, blah. Die Hard is, isn't a Christmas movie. Who cares? Dumb debate. I don't know how many times this question needs to be relitigated. Just because a movie has a high body count does not mean it can't be jolly. It seems like the right side of history won this one. Die Hard is an accepted annual rewatch. The movie even brought about another Christmas favorite. Die Hard was future Love Actually star Alan Rickman's film debut. That's all I need to know to put it in the Christmas column. Even if some Scrooge's Bah Humbug's Die Hard's festive credentials, no one can deny its technical merit. Physically gorgeous and electrifying executed, Die Hard is a perfect film. There's not an ounce of fat on them bones. It should be rewatched until Jesus celebrates his birthday in person. After the film became a runway blockbuster, Willis temporarily put his singing career on the back burner. The newly sanctioned movie star never gave up his musical dreams, though. He still thought he could pull off the transition. In 1991, his musical and cinematic aspirations reached their delusional apex with Hudson Hawk, one of the most bonkers flops of all time. In the movie, Bruce Willis plays the titular master burglar. Whereas most criminals want to get out of a place before they could get caught, Hawk takes his time coordinating his heist to this length of a specific songs. For instance, the movie opens with him and co-star Danny Aiello casing a museum while they sing a duet of Bing Crosby's Swinging on a Star. Guess what? He was easily arrested. The CIA springs him, but on a condition that he steals art on their behalf. It turns out all the pieces he's assigned to take contain special crystals Leonardo da Vinci hid in them. When the gems are put together, they unlock an alchemy machine that can turn iron into gold. A gang of villains try to steal the contraption so they can destroy the European Union. Hawk flying in his Da Vinci-designed helicopter saves the day. What? Absurd <laughs> a plot as one can hear. 
if you struggle to follow the plot, <laughs> I believe you. Willis constantly revised the screenplay during filming. In the meantime, a revolving door writers tried to turn Willis's ideas into something workable. For instance, there's a whole unrealized subplot about Little Eddie. In the brainstorming stage, Willis insisted that his character needed a monkey sidekick. And really, who doesn't? The rest of the production company shut him down. But instead of dismissing the idea entirely, they reached a bizarre compromise where Hawk's pet monkey would be kidnapped and executed before the start of the movie. Hawk is haunted by the guilt of the death of this character that the audience never knew existed. The original planned 60-day shoot ballooned to 105 days, causing the budget to skyrocket. The film absolutely bombed, pulling in just over $17 million on a $70 million budget and sweeping the 1991 Razzies, including for best, or rather in this case, worst picture. It has developed a cult following over the years because it's just so silly, like the scene where Willis fires a tennis ball cannon at a schnauzer, punting the dog out of castle window and down the cliffs below. Bruce Willis stands by the film saying that most of its detractors just do not get it. His co-star Richard E. Grant was not quite as delicate in his review, he called it a stinking pile of steaming hot donkey droppings. For the record, I kind of like it. For the record, he has no taste. Hudson Hawk's disastrous fallout stung Willis. He tried to bounce back from the professional failure by retreating into the mountainside town of Haley, Idaho. It became his personal winter blunderland. He hatched the strange enterprise of buying up the skiing town's real estate. For instance, Willis's wife Demi Moore erected a 200,000 square foot mansion exclusively to store her antique porcelain doll collection. Okay, to up the creepiness factor, Moore also designed the house to have trap doors and secret passageways. The house practically screams to be haunted, and that's even before you remember Bruce Willis was a ghost all along. Willis had such a stake in the city that he could functionally run it like a dictator. When people called him out about his abusive practices, he sent a gang of secret agents to beat them up. One journalist that snapped pictures of Willis found himself in a car chase after Willis's goons tried to run him out of town. It is unclear why Willis gave up his stake in Haley, but by 2000, every business he had opened had shut down. Sadly, we won't hear any more from Willis the singer anytime soon. Ironically, it was because of his most noteworthy role. Die Hard ruined his musical career. Constantly firing a gun next to his head left Willis permanently deaf in one ear, making a musical career impossible. His backup career left an arguably larger cultural footprint. Thanks to exposure from the Pulp Fiction soundtrack, Brooding Oddballs Urged Overkill lurched to respectable number 59 with their flute cover of Neil Diamond's pen, Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Jazz and R&B charts mainstay, vocalist virtuoso Al Jarreau managed his greatest crossover moment with the number 23 hit Moonlighting, the theme to the romantic detective show of the same name. One-hit wonder rapper Positive K broke into the top 20 with a delightful, if not deeply problematic, duet about the struggles of dating life, I Got a Man. The comic back and forth between Positive K and a woman that's actually just a falsetto version of himself went to number 14. What's your man got to do with me? I got a man. I'm not trying to hit a seat. I got a man. What's your man got to do with me? I got a man. I'm not trying to hit a If fans sought out the album version of the single, the first thing they heard was a sample of a bewildered cop wondering how he got himself into this mess again. 
That man was John McClane. Separated across years and genre, these three songs seem to have very little in common. That's true, they do. Yet, none of the actual musicians I mentioned, Urge Overkill, Algero, or Positive K, ever charted higher than the man who bound them all together. Willis still packed the hits. Well, ho, ho, holy cow, Dad. Great story. Love me some Die Hard. Great stuff all around. Well, that's about it for our holiday show. And as the year comes to a close, many people will be spending the last few days of 2023 thinking about the past four months it brought us. This usually takes the form of retrospective best of the year list. And there's one name you'll be hearing a lot about right now. That was Olivia Rodrigo. Who? Her sophomore release, Guts, has been a critical and commercial powerhouse. When you can feud with Time's 2023 person of the year, Taylor Swift, and still come out on top, you know you're doing something right. For my money, the best thing she did all year was a crunchy drunk text of a single, Bad Idea Right? I'm not alone in that opinion. Publications from NPR to Staring on the Pitchfork have praised the number 7 hit as an album highlight. It's fitting that the song is getting a lot of airplay as December comes to a close, because the man behind a few verse lines has become an unofficial voice of Christmas. At the end of the second verse, when Rodrigo is still debating the man's of hooking up with her suitor, she sings, I'm sure I've seen much hotter men, but I really can't remember when. This is a lyrical nod to a line about tougher men and a boy named Sue. Johnny Cash's hard-nosed novelty record, written by the eccentric children's poet Shel Silverstein. I tell you, I fought tougher men, but I really can't remember when. He kicked like a mule and he bit like a crocodile. Though best remembered for his whimsical poems like Where the Sidewalk Ends and the beloved children's book, The Giving Tree, Shel Silverstein was no family friendly entertainer. A squirrely little freakazoid, Silverstein was more at home partying at the Playboy Mansion than hosting Reading Rainbow. His twisted instinct sometimes got him in trouble. Doodles he drew for Star and the Stripes magazine was so lewd that he almost got court-martialed over them. He tapped into his super sensibilities in everything he did, particularly his music. Across his nine albums, Silverstein glorified everything from STDs to nude beaches to cannibals to occultists. When he toned down his antics, he turned out to be quite a reliable hitmaker. Sailing to number two in August of 1969, the song about an absentee father who names his son Sue so the child will grow up to fight anyone who makes fun of its name, marked the biggest crossover moment for both Cash and Silverstein. Remarkably, Cash never had much interest in recording a song that became his highest charting single. He spontaneously decided to play the song during a live taping at San Quentin Prison. The band made up how to play the music on the spot, while Cash read the lyrics off a sheet of paper. Silverstein sabotaged any chance for a follow-up with a purposely vile piece of incestuous smut, father of a boy named Sue. We're not going to play it, but check it out on your own time if you're a little bit of a sicko. I wonder if the real Sue appreciated tribute. A boy named Sue sends from a conversation Silverstein had with a friend and fellow writer, Gene Shepard. Shepard complained that his classmates teased him growing up for having a girl's name. We don't even imagine how the bullying impacted his childhood. Millions watch a fictionalized version of his torment each year. Shepard repackaged the embarrassing moments of youth, like struggles with bullies, crotchety departments with Santa's, and getting his tongue sucked to a frozen flagpole in a now holiday perennial, A Christmas Story. Though met with initially tepid reviews and box office sales, the film was now hard to avoid. 
TBS airs a movie on a 24-hour loop all Christmas Day. Some consider it a century watch, others find it too cute by half. Whatever your stance, it's not going away anytime soon. I love the movie. It's a major award. Yeah, it's pretty solid. I would put it in the good column. I like it. Like the man who gave him his biggest hit, Cash made his own polarizing contribution to holidays. All thanks to Merle Haggard. For Merle Haggard, Outlaw Country was more than a name. It was a self-defeating lifestyle. His long rap sheet of crimes ended on Christmas Eve, 1957, when the drunken 20-year-old was arrested for trying to rob a diner. He was sentenced to 15 years in San Quentin. While killing time the slammer, he caught Cash's performance. The prison concert series convinced him to clean up his ways. After the show, Haggard vowed to serve out the rest of his sentence on good behavior. That pledge saved his life. Fellow inmate James Rabbit Kendrick concocted a plan to break out of prison and asked Haggard if he wanted to tag along. Thinking back to the internal promise he made to Cash, Haggard rejected the offer for a release. He made the right call. During Kendrick's escape, he shot an officer. Upon capture, Kendrick was executed. If Haggard had accompanied Kendrick, one of the country's greatest artists would have died unrecorded. Instead, a man who had his Christmas ruined in 1957 lived to make all of our lives a little bit worse. Despite notching 38 number ones on Billboard's country charts, the third most of any artist ever, on the pop charts, Haggard is technically a one-hit wonder. But oh, what a hit to go out on. If we make it through December, we'll be fine. If we make it through December is a no-question classic. A brave face resolution to weather the winter's external and internal cold. The opening track of 1973's Merle Haggard's Christmas Present. The rest of the album can't help but be hurt by comparison. Particularly, a treacly less than two-minute piece of album filler called Grandma's Homemade Christmas Card. And it's the only card that we keep from year to year. Yeah. Grandma's homemade Christmas card is always here. The song ends with the big Six Sense-like twist as the narrator read his grandmother's Christmas card after she died. Songwriter Randy Brooks thought this was a cheap emotional ploy. He decided to save everyone some time by writing a song where Grandma's dead right at the beginning. Husband and wife bluegrass team Elmo and Patsy Strafsire heard Brooks play the song at a hotel bar and asked if they could cut their own take on it. The resulting cover became one of the absolute worst songs ever made. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. In case Olivia Rodrigo is listening, that is what a bad idea sounds like. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays. Have a happy new year. Sing it, Grandma. <laughs> Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Walking home from our house Christmas Eve. You can say there's no such thing as Santa. But as for me and Grandpa, we believe.